You're listening to the Your Queer Story podcast, the podcast that inspires peace, love, and radicalism, led by your favorite hosts, Evan Jones and Paul Hobbs. Trigger warning. Our content covers centuries of LGBTQ plus stories, and occasionally we may use outdated language or cover topics that include violence, assault, homophobia, transphobia, as well as other injustices against marginalized communities. Make sure you subscribe and review wherever you are listening, and be sure to follow us on all social media at Your Queer Story. And if you want exclusive content, join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash yourqueerstory. You're here, now let's get queer. Did you miss us? It's been seven days since you heard our voices. Hello. Seven days. Well, you know what? Unless you are new to the podcast and you've and you're then you have a hundred and three episodes to go through. No, a hundred and four because this is one oh five. Oh shit. A hundred and four episodes, but also avoid episodes one through fifty. <laughs> not one through fifty. Those they are great content. <laughs> but we did not have this great audio setup that we That's have true. now. That's and true. it's a little rough. It's always said that Mike Pence got to uh, he pop was the audio yeah. cherry. But you know what? At least you got to hear how horrible he was in crisp, clear That's audio. That's right. We wanted to to be real plain. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the content on the 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 beginning ones was good. The lavender scare we did a good job mm-hmm. on. That was good. Um, we, there was some good. There were some good episodes in there. So it's good content. But yeah, the audio is rough. And then our research really didn't take off until after the Stonewall episodes. Mm-hmm. That was when it started to get pretty good i think you kind of got better at finding resources and knowing Mm -hmm. what to look for and like oh well also people are going to know about this and exactly you know i did oops i did get better (laughs) at that um it's it's actually interesting a lot of people don't know that i didn't well i didn't grow up with the internet and i still didn't know how to search google until I don't know, maybe five or six years ago. Like it was a while because mm-hmm. I didn't have the internet growing up and then I was so poor I didn't have the internet again. I could only get on the internet at the library and I didn't really know what I was looking for. And so it was, yeah, it was um, within the la- last five years that I really learned how to search things online. Yeah. That's a real thing that people don't know. There's a there's a show I can't People remember. take it for granted because I've been using Google since I was like 12. So. Exactly. Young people take it for granted. There's a show I cannot remember. It's on Netflix. It's about a girl that grew up in an Orthodox Jewish environment, which if you don't know, Orthodox Jewish is that's a, also a very extreme religion. It's mm-hmm. not like regular Jewish practice. And it shows, so she, she, she leaves that, she runs away. And it shows her going to the library and she asks someone, um, you know, I need to look up something on the computer and he's like, okay, we'll just go on to Google and look it up. And she's like, how do I get to Google? And he was like, oh, okay. So, and I was like, that yeah, is, I guess even I took that for granted. Yeah. You know, that's just like a skill that I'm like, well, everybody knows how to do that. And yeah. Speaking of Google. Go ahead. I am working on a new project for your queer story. We mm-hmm. are expanding into being a daily news aggregation. Jesus no, we aren't, but we are yeah. going to have a branch of your queer story that is going to be a daily news aggregation. There is a search bar at the top. 
that currently searches Google, but I'm working on building something so you can search the queer net. Mm-hmm. And what that means is it's going to be a Your Queer Story exclusive content item. When you go to our website, our new additional website, mm-hmm. you'll be able to use that search bar to search only LGBT websites. So if you want to look up something on, say, like Andy Warhol, you can type in Andy Warhol. It'll give you results from Pink News, Queer Tea, um, BuzzFeed LGBT. I'm going to do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. And so it's not searching the entire web. So you're not going to find things from like CNN or some weird website that's misgendering someone. It'll yeah. exclusively search queer content to give you all the queer information you'll need. And you'll have a variety of sources to like look into. Yeah, which is pretty cool. That's going to be called the Queer Net, so... The queer net. Be ready for that. Yeah, I'm. I'm ready for it. Mm. It's Probably help good. you a lot, actually. <laughs> It'll help me so much on my research because you're right. That's exactly what you run into. I mean, like I do pull from other sources a lot, but a lot of it is because the queer sources are buried. They're buried exactly. You have to but look so this far. This is going to put them on the front line. This is like you know you're searching like um, TG Riot. I think that's one of the websites. TG Riot, um, maybe. But yeah, um, there's there's so many. Yeah. All these websites that, you know, the authors are independent people or small businesses who don't know how to compete with websites like CNN or Mm -hmm. BuzzFeed or these major companies who take up like the first four pages of Google. Exactly. So this is going to really help bring queer information to the forefront for anybody who's listening, anybody who visits the website. I hope it turns into like a bigger thing where it's not just our listeners visiting. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's pulling daily news, it's inclusive, it's got intersexual news, bisexual news, pansexual news, asexual, you know, entertainment, lifestyle, politics. So it's really an aggregation of all of this content that you can refresh every day and stay up to date. It's queer content for queer people. Exactly. Queer created. And that's what's very important is like you're getting your source because that's what a lot of these places do is they pull like CNN will pull from these queer creators who are doing the on the ground work mm-hmm. and then they'll re- rewrite the words a little bit and they'll take, you know, all the credit for it or they'll mention them briefly, but they still get the likes people, places like CNN will still get the likes and still get the views and still mm-hmm. get all of that. So you're not only finding more uh, resourceful and better information, but you're also supporting queer creators and writers directly by looking through that so yeah it's coming along nice it looks good i mean thank you yeah so um i don't know where i'm going before that um another thing that we're doing at your queer story which has been going for a couple weeks now i keep hitting this thing i know i'm like great thanks for all the background noise you know what samantha's not here so you're trying to compensate exactly that's right (laughs) she left during this recording today um no uh we are doing the LGBTQ support group. It is on Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern time. I do have a time zone chart that I post. And anybody can join that is LGBTQ, but you have to message us on your queer story first. Or you can message me directly on social media, but you have to contact us. And we have to talk to you and screen you before you can join the group. That it's is- just to ensure confidentiality and privacy and that mm-hmm. there's not trolls. And, you know, exactly. it's to kind of keep everybody safe. 
It is absolutely to keep people safe because the one downfall of video conferencing is that they've had some trouble with people trolling the content, mm -hmm. which we've taken extra measures to make sure that it's safe and it's private. So it would, it would be very hard for someone to be able to know the link to our video conferencing. But that's why I also screen people because I don't want someone to take that link and share it. Right. Put it on like 4chan or Reddit or something. Exactly. And, yeah. It also changes every week. So yeah, it, they, it would be hard. But still, the this point is, is Evan, you, got, you need to understand, like, <laughs> he did not know how to use Google. He did nope. not know how to use Microsoft Paint. He is creating graphics. He is mm -hmm. giving you a changing video conference leak on a weekly basis. This is a huge milestone. I'm like so proud right now. Thanks. Thanks. I've come so far. It's like when so a dad watches the kid ride a bike. Like that's how I feel. Whenever <laughs> you do something on like, I'm like, wow. Yeah. He'll message me and be like, did you make that? <laughs> he probably thought I was going to fucking insult you. Didn't I you? did. I was like, what's he got a problem now? Because I don't know how many times he's been like, it's just the color scheme or it's just. No, you've gotten do this. better. I was I've very done better. So. Yes. So, but yes, you can join our Friday's support group. It's for people from unsupported families and unsupportive environments. But honestly, anybody that's LGBTQ is welcome to join. Mm -hmm. If you just want to have a virtual way to connect with other queer people, then like I said, email us at yourqueerstory at Gmail or message us directly on our social media. Yep. So while you're here, how about you give us a little like, subscribe, review. Mm -hmm. And if you're on a platform such as Spotify, which does not allow for reviews, feel free to tweet us or, you know, go on iTunes or Stitcher and drop a review there. Yeah. Um, it takes one to five minutes and it is the biggest thing you can do for our podcast because the more reviews we have, the more five-star reviews we have, the higher we'll appear on the charts, the more the algorithms will give us a little love and more people can join in. That's right. And we are asking, the one thing that we've asked from our listeners this month, we didn't do any kind of a drive for money or anything, um, which you are always welcome to join our Patreon, but there's been a lot other of other things going on this month that we really want to center like black resources and black mm -hmm. uh, people. But if you want to share our podcast with other people, let them know and be aware of it, well, then we would really appreciate that. Yeah. So that's, that's our only ask this Pride Month really is to share, tell people about the podcast and, you know, mm -hmm. and ask them to share with people. So we drop a link more. on Facebook. Twitter, mm -hmm. wherever you are, and you know, even if one person clicks on it, if we have 300 of our listeners who post something and one person clicks on it, that's 300 new listeners who may have never heard of us, who now can binge listen to 104 episodes. Exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah, so if you want to help us with that, as we're winding down to the last couple days of Pride Month, and it has been a weird Pride yeah, Month. Yeah, I'm like... I'm so sad, but hopefully, I'm hoping in October, if you know, there's yeah. not like a second wave. I want like Pride Halloween month. That's what I. That's what I think it's gonna be. I think that's gonna be the real um, Pride month this year. And that was the original Pride it month. It was. So. so look at that. Fifty-one years later, we're back to it. The full circle moments in in um, in Providence. They're doing the Black Trans Live um, Matter March, and it's going down the original. Um, the original path that was marched in the very first Rhode Island Pride in 1976. Wow, so that's it's, pretty cool. It's a formal march for. It's not a parade. There's not mm -hmm. dancing. It's people formally marching for the rights of queer people, just like they have been. It's really incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. 
So, yeah. Um, I mean, we have other things. you want to talk about your week? We've got a lot of stuff today. Uh, you know what? Honestly, <laughs> my week has just been a lot of the same because of quarantine. Yeah. Lot, I've been going to my therapy phone appointments, and best decision I ever made was finding a therapist. So mm-hmm. Google LGBT therapists. I guarantee you there's one close to you. If there's not, they're doing a lot of phone appointments now, virtual appointments because of quarantine. So mm-hmm. get on therapy. Yes, we we did a even whole, if you don't think you need it. <laughs> absolutely, one thousand percent. Get on therapy. I, I cannot recommend it enough. I'm never gonna stop recommending that people go to therapy because nobody thinks they need therapy no, until they do it. No, the, I don't know what the stigma is, but honestly, you can find affordable therapy and you can get so much help. You've got to have someone looking objectively at your life. You just do. Because you think you're in the right all the time mm-hmm. because you're you and this is your life. Yeah. But when somebody says, hey, why don't you do this? Or, hey, did you think about this? Or did you consider it this way? You're like, oh, shit. No, I didn't. <laughs> How are you supposed to grow? It's it's always astounding to me and it's astounding to me now but five years ago it wouldn't have been but it's astounding to me how we assume that we're going to be able to grow and be better people and change absolutely nothing like not going to read anything new not going to intake any new information not going to surround yourself with newer better people not going to go to therapy you're not going to change a goddamn thing in your life and you think you're just naturally going to be a better person Mm -hmm. the biggest thing that i always tell people is make yourself uncomfortable because when you're uncomfortable that's when you grow the most yes exactly you are not going to grow if you're sitting at home doing the same thing you've always done taking no risks taking no challenges not trying anything if you are not uncomfortable you are not going to grow and I'm sorry, reading three memes on Facebook is not going to be growth either. It, it's good. It's a good point to like stop and reflect. That's a good basis point. But then mm-hmm. what? Um, speaking of reading, if you go to audibletrial.com slash queer, mm-hmm. you can get a free uh, 30-day Audible subscription plus a free audiobook. And with that free audiobook, you can actually listen to White Fragility, which yeah. is currently the number one selling book for people to reflect on racism. Um, and I've actually listened to it. I'm halfway through. I'm very proud of myself. Good. Because I am not a reader. And it actually has opened my eyes so much to things that I didn't realize. Yeah. I'm actually just about to start that book. I have it um, on, when, on Audible. Yeah. Even you are going to be like, oh, shit. Oh, I'm sure. I just bought the book stamped by um, uh, Kindy Ibram. Um, he's like the the number mm-hmm. one um, race anti race. Um, I don't want to say theorist, but uh, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, anti racist. Maybe it's theorist. Like he's developed that mm-hmm. understanding of anti racism versus just versus just like you know equality, like right. how to be anti racist, mm-hmm. not just inclusive. Right. And um, and so I just bought his book. So that's coming on Monday. I'm very excited about that book. But I want to do the white fragility uh, because there's a um, a book club. And some of my friends are reading it. Also, I've been wanting to read it, but that was just a good reason to be like, yeah. oh, let's read this through together, talk about it. Maybe we could do a year queer story book club. I think it'd be great. I think, One, you know. Once a month, though, because it's going to take me time oh, to yeah, get Oh, yeah, no. Through. There's so much going on. It would be great to do your queer story um, book club, but I think someone else should volunteer to run it, preferably a, a person of color and it or just somebody a- do it. Anybody listeners. But if you do want to be in touch with the book club that we're doing, I could probably put you in touch with the coordinator of that because I think it'd be good to do workshop. There's a lot of free 
um, webinars. And webinars, I know we can all be webinared out, but there are a lot of great free webinars available right now, and I really think you should look it up and take advantage of it because, again, it puts you in that uncomfortable to really have someone help you work through your reflection. Stopping and, and, and thinking about something is important, but you've got to do active steps to work on it. Right. So, yeah. But, but anyways, guess what, guys? This is like our two-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. If you've been here since day one, you're, you're, a, you. real, you're a real fan because it was rough in the beginning. I'm not going to lie. I, we have very few people that have been here. I think they're all <laughs> our friends and family. <laughs> the only ones. But you know what? If you hopped on somewhere in the middle, thanks for joining mm-hmm. us. And it's because of everybody who's joined and listened and commented and participated and asked questions and sent us messages and, you know, really expressed the gratitude for the podcast that we've continued to do it there have been so many people who have messaged us and said thank you i feel like i have something now that is for me or thank you i didn't realize this or you've educated me like there's been so many kind messages and there's also been a lot of messages of people saying hey you did this wrong Mm -hmm. thank you for those people too because we've grown significantly from this podcast a lot as people as I say all the time, like mm-hmm. this podcast changed my life and my personal growth because I learned so you much. You have a whole new career because of this podcast. I do. I do. And I'm very, very grateful for mm-hmm. it. So with that in mind. We are trying to make this a two hour episode. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't even have to work that hard. Um, so we are going to launch back into our coverage of the AIDS crisis during the 1980s. Do you want me to start? Yes. If you have not listened to part one, we strongly encourage that you do so. You don't always have to listen to part one, but on this one, you really do. Also, I feel like every time we have a two-part, I'm like, well, you don't have to listen to part one, but you should. I just feel like you can't really understand what's going on. Like, yeah. These, yes, this is a different time period than part one, but also part one gives you all of the information that leads up to this so you can understand the behind the scenes of what's happening during yeah. this episode. It's the context of it. Right. You got to understand. All right. We begin in 1983 when the crisis is finally gaining widespread medical attention. By now, the mystery disease has gone through several name changes, starting with the misdiagnosis of pneumonia and the cancer Carposis sarcoma, changing to the offensive gay cancer or gay plague, and finally landing on the well-known acronym of AIDS, the Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. At the dawn of 1983, 900 people had officially been diagnosed with AIDS, and a time would later prove that this number was woefully inaccurate. Doctors in New York, San Francisco, Miami, and several other large cities had been treating patients for five years. 30 states reported cases, and 52 worldwide cases in 15 countries had been recorded so far. And the scary part is this is so underreported, and Mm -hmm. so, like, the amount of people who had it at this time, like, uh, exponentially more than that this is just like the oh yeah we're gonna acknowledge it and we're gonna test a few people but like it's not that big of a deal yeah they don't realize yet how long the incubation period is Mm -hmm. and the fact that you can have it for 10 years and when they realize that you're like oh it's just starting to show up now like it's like they say waves because you see the waves rolling in and you're like fuck right there are so many reasons why the number of deaths was so underreported 
For one, the very nature of AIDS made it difficult to diagnose. Because the virus breaks down the immune system, the individual usually dies of a different illness. And because there was not a lot of knowledge of AIDS at the time, many people who had died in previous years had a different cause of death marked on their medical record. Another reason the numbers were so deflated was due to the stigma around AIDS. Many patients who had AIDS requested a different cause of death be marked on their death certificates. As one wealthy businessman told a nurse, better to die of cancer than to die of AIDS. Yeah. And technically, they could request something different, you know. Oh, I didn't even know you could do that. I thought, like, if you died, they had to put down why you died. Well, the the problem was, again, because there was so little knowledge around AIDS and there was so much controversy, and because AIDS does, you do technically die of something else. Mm-hmm. So they just be like, well, don't say I died of AIDS, say I died of pneumonia, say Whatever I died of I cancer. Whatever I have, that kills me. Exactly. Yeah. But the final reason the numbers weren't reported was due to medical and professional refusal to acknowledge AIDS in every person who was not a homosexual. Even though the very thought of a virus targeting a person because of their sexual orientation defied all science and medicine, officials insisted that only gays could get AIDS. Gays and Haitians, anyway. Another group that politicians and medical leaders didn't mind slapping the stigma upon. It was frustrating that officials ignored the studies of doctors such as Dr. Rubenstein, who by now had recorded close to 20 cases of AIDS in children, and Dr. Gwinnon, who had been tracking AIDS in drug users since 1981. Which is so sad because think of how different those children's lives could have been if they would just acknowledge it. Exactly. All of these people just die. I mean, not just the children, but, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, all these other communities that are getting destroyed or these other groups of people and nobody they're like no you're not gay that can't be what you have exactly so you can't get funding and you can't get proper treatment and they're trying to treat you with with medicine and such and things that are inadequate for what you have Mm -hmm. but they can't get anyone to even believe that you have it right and so it's just like well sorry but most alarmingly, it was incredibly dangerous to ignore that heterosexuals could get infected. Since 1982, several physicians had warned that AIDS could be transmitted through blood transfusions, but blood banks were not interested in the news. If they acknowledged that AIDS could be passed by transfusion, then the banks would be between a rock and a hard place. Either they spent millions in bolstering and pre-screening blood donations, or they banned all gays from donating blood, which tanked their annual donations by 7%. Ironically, while public health officials seemed to care little about the lives and well-being of queer people, they still needed their blood. And again, the stigma of believing that AIDS was a gay disease allowed for plenty of heterosexual and straight-passing individuals to continue donating blood with no screening. So what was especially frustrating that I didn't put in here was that there was a they found there was a blood screening that for hepatitis um, B, which they had been putting in mm-hmm. place. And they found if you did that blood screening, you caught most of the signs that a person had AIDS. And so they were like, look, even if you don't do any other screening, even if you just type test for the hepatitis B, then you could probably, you know, at least catch some things. And they were like, no, we're not going to do that. That's going to cost money. And it's still an argument today because they didn't want to ban gays from donating blood, but the gays were showing the highest amounts of AIDS. In reality, they should have just tested everyone's blood. Right. But they didn't want to spend the money on that. Which now to think about it, how many people were infected with AIDS from blood donations? Thousands. Who then went and infected other people through sex or, you know, from a cut or whatever other, you know, without knowing that they had it. 
Well, that's exactly why the virus went from being a couple hundred to thousands to a hundred thousand and then doubling to 200 and 300 rapidly. It just started to spread. Like we don't even get to that in 19 because we only go through 1985, Mm but by the 1990s into the 2000s, you are tripling your rates at just so fast and it's because of that. It's mm-hmm. because you're not testing and because people who don't know that they have AIDS are passing it. Mm-hmm. As the crisis approached the mid-1980s, two large obstacles seemed to stand in the way of proper AIDS education and safe sex promotion. The first obstacle being the obstinacy of public health officials to see AIDS as anything other than a gay-exclusive virus, while the second obstacle came from the queer community itself as LGBTQ leaders refused to confront the rampant, rubber-free orgies that took place in the bathhouses night after night. Any person who attempted to suggest the bathhouses should take a safer approach to sex were decried as a Nazi with internalized homophobia. Yet even though people claimed they didn't believe in safe sex, their bravado fell bravado. Their bravado fell away when no one else was around. A survey of 600 gay men in San Francisco found that two-thirds of respondents had changed their sexual activity in at least a few ways since learning of AIDS. 15% said they stopped bottoming, 28% stopped rimming, and 5% stopped sex altogether. Still, there was also a knowledge of self-destruction that can be understood by those who face such harsh social rejection and injustice. One respondent stated plainly, Since I found out about AIDS, sometimes I get so frustrated that I have sex that I know I shouldn't be having. It was almost like a way to commit suicide. Yeah. You're like, fuck it. If I'm going to fucking die of being gay, at least I'll have fucking fun. And there's also that thing, again, you push so hard to be able to have sex with whoever you want it. And so at this point, you're like... You want it, it, people saw it as almost like you want us to go back in the closet, which wasn't really what was being asked, but that's what they felt. And right. they're like, I would just rather die of AIDS than do that. Right. You know, and it's hard because, like you said, at this time, they're just getting so many victories. So mm-hmm. it's like that battle. Yeah, exactly. So the very nature of the disease and the government's complete lack of care or even acknowledgement was enough for any person to throw up their hands in despair. The Reagan administration had repeatedly denied budget increases for AIDS research and AIDS treatment, as the president made it clear to his officials that he wasn't going to waste any more time or money on the disease of the poor, which is what AIDS had truly become in America. It wasn't a gay disease. It was an impoverished It was an impoverished minority disease. In New Jersey, 44% of AIDS patients were drug users and 68% were black or Latino. It seemed seemed half of the nation believed AIDS was God's judgment on homosexuals, and the other half saw it as a way to wash away all the undesirables of the land. With any luck, Reagan could get his all-white, all-Christian, all-straight America. And though the apathy was infuriating... What followed was horrifying. In May of 83, a report from the American Medical Association was released, warning about the possible ways AIDS could be transmitted. Later that day, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who you may all know, Mm -hmm. um, of the National Institute of Health in Maryland, made this statement. If routine personal contact among family members in a household is enough to spread the illness, then AIDS takes on an entirely new dimension. So that was huge moment in AIDS history because that's when the stigma of if you touch a gay person, if you drink after a gay person, Mm -hmm. if you sit on a toilet seat as a gay person, you're going to get AIDS. 
If the name Dr. Fauci sounds familiar to you, that's because he is the man heading the federal coronavirus response. In his defense, Fauci has said repeatedly that his line was taken out of context. He did spend the rest of the AIDS crisis fighting the epidemic and supporting the queer community. Unfortunately, the implication that AIDS could be spread through routine touch or household contact was a lie that we continue to fight to this day. And while we've come a long way in the last several decades, when news stations shared that AIDS could be spread through casual touch, the world erupted. Suddenly, the heterosexuals felt threatened and the gay crisis was no longer a joke. Now the gays and the rest of the disease-ridden poor were a threat that must be avoided at all costs. I remember in my early uh, gay bar days mm-hmm. when I found out like somebody came out as having AIDS, I would be like, can I hug them? And mm-hmm. I would like watch other people see and like see them hug them and I would be like, okay, I guess that's okay. Yeah. Just because even, I mean, I've learned so much since the podcast, but like, I don't know, when I was 21, I was very ignorant on things like yeah. that and I didn't know. Because yeah. I had heard that, like, oh, if somebody has, don't touch them, don't go near them. Right. If they sneeze on you, yeah. you know, anything like that. And it's like just that. things you're taught yeah. through. I mean, I, I didn't know it all. Went back to Dr. Fauci, but there, here we go. And what's astounding, right, this is 1983. And within a few years, they come out and they're like, you can't get it through routine touch. But here we are 40 years later. Mm-hmm. And when I'm making my sex education course for work, we still have to stress you can't get AIDS through casual touch. Right. You know, it's because it has lingered longer than anything else. Mm-hmm. Nurses began to quit on the spot if forced to care for an AIDS patient. Landlords evicted gay and Haitian residents immediately, regardless of their health status. Black people marked clearly on job applications that they were not Haitian. Gangs of young white men roved the streets looking uh, looking to rid it of plague-carrying faggots. If we don't kill these fags, they'll kill us with their fucking AIDS, one attacker told the police. Some people became re-emboldened with open racist jokes, such as when CBS co-anchor Bill Curry's, Bill Curris opened the company banquet with the line, what's the hardest part about having AIDS? Trying to convince your wife that you're, that you're Haitian. Oh. Yeah, he opened the company banquet with that. The moral majority, led by Jerry Falwell, made a formal public statement. We feel the deepest sympathy for AIDS victim, victims, but I'm upset that the government is not spending more money to protect the general public from the gay plague. Reverend Walter Alexander gave a more vocal response to reporters. I think we should do what the Bible says and cut their homosexual throat. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I think had the AIDS crisis either A, been handled different or B, not been... Um, not happened, I mean, yeah. or not been assigned to like the gay community, I think mm-hmm. we would be in a very different place today and as a country as far as like homophobia and, you know, anger towards the queer community. A hundred percent agree because it justified people's bigotry. Like mm-hmm. people were bigoted. It made it okay. And rather than looking at that, they were like, well, of course we're bigoted. Look at the diseases that they carry. Mm-hmm. And it was all in the way that it was spun. It just right. happened to really take off in the gay community. And that was because there was a lot of unprotected sex. But it was also, I mean, it was also taking off at alarming rates in other communities. It was just underreported. Nobody knew about it. It was hidden. It was brushed under the rug. Nobody wanted to talk about it. They're like, we can make this a gay plague. And then, again, it goes back to that thing. If we tell people it's a gay disease, then there won't be panic. It was honestly, it was a strategic move by the Reagan administration because if we tell people that there's a new disease... Like the coronavirus, people will panic. But if we tell them it's only the gays, people will be fine. They won't care. They won't care. They'll go about their lives as normal. And guess what? That's one more person, one more group of people that they can other. And that makes our lives easier because we don't got to worry about them. Yeah. And by categorizing it that way, 
all these heterosexual people were becoming infected with AIDS and believing that they couldn't have AIDS. Yep. So, of course, there were also people trying to make money off of the suffering. Countless so-called cures were hawked to desperate victims. A patient could travel to Mexico for injections of every bizarre treatment imaginable. Lectures were given on testing the consistency of your cum to measure one's health. The post office stopped a scam that was charging victims $1,900, which is over $6,000 today, for a guaranteed cure for AIDS. And one guy robbed a bank just by handing a teller a note that said he had AIDS. The girl was so afraid he would simply reach out and touch her that she shoved a wad of money over at him and ducked behind the barricade. Wow. <laughs> the most of the hysteria most of the hysteria was brutally cruel. In October of 1983, a jet flew 2781 miles from Gainesville, Florida to San Francisco, California. At the airport, an ambulance met the jet and transported a patient to San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Medics walked into the building, dropped the stretcher with a man on it onto the floor, and walked out. No one wanted to treat patients with AIDS. No one wanted to even try to treat patients with AIDS. And insurance sure as hell had no intentions of paying for the cost of a person dying with AIDS. So instead, they transported a dying man to the other side of the country to get rid of their problem. Just like their government. If they didn't see the problem, then maybe it would no longer exist. And the insurance actually was like, you know, of course, they try to justify it like you guys are just the best people to handle it. But they never called and made any arrangements. Nobody knew this man was coming. And he actually died quicker because they transported him almost 3000 miles to this place, mm-hmm. you know, um, just so that they didn't have to deal with him anymore. And this is when everything changes to where before there's kind of whispers and people are like, you know, yeah, there's a gay disease to where the country turns against the gay community a hundred percent and there's hatred and now everybody is coming out and they're saying things like like we should slit their homosexuals throat was a regular thing that people said like kill the gays round them up and you have to think about that when you hear this hate and you're reading it in your newspapers and people are going through the streets looking for gay men to kill to stop the disease this is how you prevent the plague from taking over your country this is how you protect people this is how you protect the innocent good christian white people so then when someone comes and says we need to start testing your your blood gay people are like fuck no because that's just you making a list of all the gay people so that you can kill us yeah and it sounds ridiculous but imagine it's also living in that fear. possible exactly good 1984 brought another election and the president who had yet to publicly acknowledge aids who had slashed funding repeatedly and who had blocked resources and support for queer people and people of color would end up winning re-election in a landslide By the end of 1983, more than 3,000 cases had been reported in the United States, and researchers had discovered the unsettling truth of the disease's long incubation period, meaning that it was almost certain that countless more people were walking around carrying the virus and had no idea. At the time, there was no distinction... There was no distinction between HIV and AIDS. No effective treatments had been found, and no person had survived the disease. There was no question that a person would die of AIDS, and only the question of when. While it is easy to back Schiltz reprimands against gay men's sexual habits, it is also important to remember that people still thought that they could spot AIDS in a person. So men looked for purple lesions on their partners, and if they didn't see any, they assumed that the individual was clean. They had no idea that they could be infected with the disease for more than 10 years and never show any signs. But horrifyingly, scientists realized that meant people had been carrying the disease and spreading it for almost five years before it began to show up in medical offices and clinics. This shock was compounded when doctors and research began to realize just how much sex was happening in the bathhouses and gay party sites. A lot. Yeah. 
A July 1984 Los Angeles cluster study of homosexual men with AIDS revealed that most of the participants had over 1,000 sexual partners in their lifetime. Many had as many as 2,000, and one outstanding individual had been with over 2,500 partners, many of which he tracked in his journals that he gave to researchers to try to retrace his steps. The man was originally known as Patient 57, often referenced on medical charts with the letter O, since he was originally from outside Los Angeles, unlike the rest of the men in L.A. cluster study. His name was Gaetan Dugas, Duga. Duga. Duga, a flight attendant who hailed from Quebec and would go down in history as Patient Zero. The infamy of Patient Zero stemmed from a clerical error turned media sensation. The letter O on typewriters at the time was the same as the number zero. When transcribing the lecture given on the cluster study and patient O, somewhere along the line, the O became a zero, and with it the idea that patient 57 had actually originated the disease in America. This belief was perpetuated by Randy Schultz, who saw the idea of patient zero as a fantastic selling point. He then built a story that intentionally painted the picture of Dugas as a narcissist deliberately spreading his aids to others. Though Schultz admitted there was no way to know who had brought AIDS to the States, he also understood that every good story needs a villain. By casting Dugas as a monster, perhaps the journalist thought he could just he could deflect from the hate directed at the so-called innocent AIDS victims. Throughout his book, Randy Schultz portrays the idea of guilty, fast-lane gays who care only about sex versus the moral, monogamous gays that oppose that lifestyle. Yet the truth is, the monsters were those who watched a plague unfold and did nothing to stop the plague until it started to harm straight white people. Monsters within and without the community, like when Larry Kramer discovered one of the directors of the National Institute of Health was gay. Is this one of the reasons this institute has been so negligent with AIDS? Larry demanded of the director's assistant, because the director is in the closet? Yeah, so um, so you got Larry Kramer, who is an advocate, and Bill Cross, and repeatedly they would find these men in Congress and in, in, in the, the National Institute of Health and more, and they're closeted homosexuals and they're doing nothing to fight the AIDS crisis. And they're like, you don't see what's happening to your community. You mm-hmm. don't see the way that we're being betrayed. You don't see the way that we're dying. You're not doing anything about it. And the men just like, you know, just got to protect our status. Yeah. Which we're going to talk about a man like that on our next episode, by the way. It's mm-hmm. a good one. As AIDS became more widely known, gay men in prominent positions became quieter and quieter. There was quite a battle between openly gay men such as Bill Krause and Larry Kramer and the powerful closeted gay men of their cities. Bill and Larry despised the men for their lack of backbone as they openly spoke out about their sexuality and the AIDS crisis. Kramer had published a widely popular article in the gay community titled 1112 and Counting, which spoke of the disease in very plain terms. Yet Kramer and his counterpart Bill Cross did take for granted their fortunate circumstances to live openly. Most queer communities in large cities were enduring a wave of hate and hostility they hadn't experienced in in nearly 15 years. Everything that had been gained since Stonewall seemed to be slipping away. LGBTQ plus folks were finally becoming overwhelmed with the disease and the lack of governmental existence. It seemed that no help would come until officials openly acknowledged this was more than a gay plague. And by 1984, AIDS was beginning to ravage much more than just queer and minor- minority communities. The blood bank's refusal to screen blood donations had led to hundreds of hem- hemophiliacs being injected, as well as countless others who had transfusions during routine surgical procedures. Doctors such as Dritz, Connacht, Rubenstein, and more were begging blood banks to screen their, don- their donors. 
The harder they pushed for screening, the harder the queer community pushed back. They were legitimate fear. There was legitimate fear around blood screenings. What did that mean? Would those with so-called gay blood be rounded up and put into camps? What would happen if there was a database of every person with the gay cancer? Or disturbingly, what if there was a database of every person considered gay? The years of FBI blacklists, known as lavender lists, created created against LGBTQ people were still fresh in the community's mind, along with World War II. Exactly. You know, in the 80s, you weren't that far from that. You probably lived through that, you know, mm-hmm. if you're an older gay man at the time. And you saw the horrors of what happens if you're labeled in government eyes, like if they know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the lavender list, the lavender scare, the red scare, all of that. What, mm-hmm. what happens to you? And this. And what if it was more? What if the government was categorizing gay men and queer people to eliminate them? It may seem like a far-fetched conspiracy theory, yet just a decade before, a horrifying experiment conducted by the CDC had been exposed. Between 1932 and 1972, the Center for Disease and Control intentionally provided fake treatment to 600 black men in what would become known as the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment. The men were told that they were receiving free medical treatment for bad blood. In reality, the CDC doctors gave the men placebos and never treated their illness. They never even informed the men of their specific disease, which was syphilis. Instead, they simply absorbed the effects of the disease. While the so-called experiment was supposed to last only six months, it ended up lasting 40 years. By 1947, penicillin was known to treat syphilis, yet the CDC officials never offered the medicine. Moreover, they used the military to prevent the patients from seeking medical treatment elsewhere as the disease began to kill them. Syphilis is a disease that also lays dormant for many years before slowly destroying the body, starting with large rashes and eventually causing brain, heart, and other organ damage. It is a very painful and often terrifying way to die as the individual usually loses their mental capacities towards the end. Despite knowing this, the doctors allowed the men to not only suffer, but also to infect their wives and birth 19 children who carried the disease as well. The experiments were only stopped when the story was leaked to the papers and the patient realized then what was happening to them. With this case very fresh in everyone's mind, it was completely reasonable to believe the Reagan administration was not only ignoring the crisis, but may be responsible for it. The LGBTQ community wasn't interested in hearing about testing and control. Yeah, so you got to look up the the Tuskegee experiment. But yeah, um, 600 people plus wives and children, Mm -hmm. and you just for 40 years watched them die. And then it's leaked by the press, and they're like, oops, Oh sorry. my God, did we do that? It was just this one department. We just let them get out of control. I guess we weren't paying attention. I am so sorry. You know, it's just black people, so it's okay. Nobody really cares, right? Right, exactly. So, And again, that's 1972. We're in 1983. So mm-hmm. that's 10 years ago. You read in the newspaper that your own government conducted this experiment letting people die. Hell yeah, you're like, I, fuckers, I've, all the homophobia, and then the way we watched you let black people die, you're not touching us. Yeah. In San Francisco, director of the San Francisco Health Department, Merv Silverman, held yet another meeting to try and convince the bathhouses to close down, or at the very least to offer safer forms of sex. Ever since the bathhouse owners had been approached in late 1981, they had put up a harsh resistance. At best, some houses had put up AIDS awareness posters in the back corners of their baths. A few had dedicated one night a week to J.O. nights, where they encouraged men to jack off instead of having sex. But overall, the rate of sex in baths hadn't slowed down. Doctors Don Aberman, Paul Volberding, 
Volberding um, yeah. of the AIDS clinic had attended the meeting to show the bathhouse owners the effects of AIDS on individuals. They even created a slideshow but decided against it when they realized that just the idea of seeing pictures of people dying of AIDS made the bath owners uncomfortable. After Abram and Volberding uh, gave their lecture to the group of men, they seemed um, unmoved. Finally, one owner of the largest bathhouse in the area spoke up. We're both in it for the same thing, he told the doctors, money. We make money at one end, and when they come to the bathhouse, you make money from them on the other end when they come here. Ugh. Yeah, can you imagine seeing people die and being like, look, buddy, we, we help them get AIDS and you treat AIDS. Everybody's winning. It's a win-win situation. Right. As the battle of local politics and medicine raged, the worldwide search for the cause of AIDS had turned into a deadly competition. Researchers in France, prominently Dr. Montagneur of the Pasteur Institute, had previously determined the cause of AIDS and submitted his work to the American doctors working on the disease. But the distinguished U.S. physician Bob Gallo was, a was determined to gain credit for the discovery and sabotage the French studies. This subterfuge would not come to light until early 1984, one year after the cause of the disease had been found by Paris researchers. And this is when they realized that there was HIV. So there was that um, incubation period mm -hmm. where you could be treated because once it hit full-blown AIDS, there was nothing you could do. Um, so there was a year in there that nothing was being done because Gallo was sabotaging the experiments. Even once this was discovered, the bickering and rivalry, rivalry over who would gain credit continued to slow the progress towards finding treatment for AIDS. Still, with the medical community in, in agreement that the cause of AIDS had been found, it was time to go public. Yet even this announcement would be bogged down in politics as U.S. officials were prohibited from making the announcement. The silent president was in his re-election year and suddenly wanted credit for the discovery. His administration instructed the doctors to keep silent until Secretary of Health Margaret Heckler could announce Reagan's success, even though the information came to light in early of February of 84. Heckler strategically waited until it was closer to the middle of the election year to announce the cause of AIDS had been found. On April 23rd, 1984, Margaret Heckler approached the podium and announced, Today, we add another miracle to the long honor roll of American medicine and science. Today's discovery represents the triumph of science over a dreaded disease. Those who have disparaged this scientific search, those who have said we were not doing enough, have not understood how sound, solid, significant medical research proceeds. From the first day that AIDS was identified in 1981, HHS scientists and their medical allies have never stopped searching for the answers to the AIDS mystery. Without a day of procrastination, the researchers of the Public Health Service have been effective effectively mobilized and that's why when people are so like you really think your government would lie to you blah 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 uh, -huh. uh yeah because you know what we've actually done well you've done the research but i've seen it <laughs> yeah over and over again the government killing its own the citizens sabotaging people delaying information mm -hmm. taking credit for things they didn't do this is what the government does this is why when people are so blindly following the president. <laughs> exactly. Without a day of procrastination. Motherfucking Margaret, are you going to sit there and tell me that? Mm. Yes, you guys didn't. <laughs> you pretended it didn't even fucking exist. Yeah. It was an outright lie and insulting to those who had been working for so long to find the cause of AIDS. The speech ignored the French completely, and towards the end, Heckler even added, We hope to have a vaccine ready for testing in about two years. Yet another terrible disease is about to yield to patience, persistence, and outright genius. The next morning, newspapers around the country heralded the news with articles that stated, Research could be two years from a cure for ailment. 
Of course, it wasn't all Heckler's fault. She had been given the false promise from Dr. Gallo, who is trying to redeem himself after his blundering with the French. In Schultz's book, Gallo is seen as, well, shallow Gallo. He spends a good chunk of the early epidemic searching more for his praise and fame than for a way to help the victim the victims. Gallo's desire to retain his favorability through false promises would stall the urgency around AIDS funding and research. So if you don't know, there's still not a cure for AIDS. There is treatment, but you can live a yeah. perfectly normal life pretty much. If and, you have HIV. Yeah. But if you have HIV but correct. Heckler announcing in nineteen eighty three that just two years and we're gonna have a cure for this it really like so there was like this momentum of people being like, okay, we, we got to do something about this. And she's like, we're gonna have a cure in two years. Everything's fine. And people are like, okay, I guess we're good. We're yeah, fine. We don't have to worry about it. You got it. Like, right. Cool. Exactly. So, and I think there was a miscommunication because I do think that Gallo was trying to be like, we'll probably have a cure. Um, and Heckler was like, we're gonna tell them we will have a cure. But um, it both of them were just. It was all about their public image right. between Gallo and Heckler for Reagan trying to preserve the public image. Mm -hmm. It just, again, became about their politics and not about the people. Back in San Francisco, the city was finally taking assertive measures to close down the bathhouses. Since the owners refused to comply willingly, city officials backed them into a corner. Either the bathhouses shut their doors temporarily or the board would put it to a democratic vote. And if the citizens of San Francisco voted to close down the baths, then who knew if they would ever reopen? Unable to resist any longer, the bath owners met to discuss the terms of closure. During their meeting, a young man named Stephen Del Rey stormed into the room. You're doing a dreadful thing, he shouted. You will rot in hell. Blood will be flowing in the streets. You have all made a serious mistake. The young man was distraught that his bathhouses were closing. He was quite good-looking and very popular. There were even rumors he was sleeping with the famous movie star Rock Hudson. Two years later, sadly, Stephen would pass away from AIDS at age 29. Two days after the bathhouse meeting, patient zero Gaetan Dugas Duga died of AIDS. He never stopped having sex, even after the doctors insisted. He also never really believed he had AIDS. Dugas lived his own lived in his own denial fantasy of invincibility. While he is portrayed as a psychopath who willingly infected other men with the disease, in truth, he lived exactly how most other queer people did at the time. Even as more research came to life, people were only beginning to slow down sexual exploits and use safer methods. This isn't to excuse Dugas for sleeping with people after being told he had a sexually transmitted disease, but rather to shine a light on a common line of thought at the time. Youthful ignorance combined with a lack of knowledge and available resources had made for a deadly cocktail. When Evan interviewed gay journalist Brody Levesque, Levesque. Levesque damn, about the AIDS crisis 40 years later, Brody still couldn't find a good answer for why people didn't avoid the bathhouses and heed the advice of safer sex. This was just what the queer community knew. This was their mm -hmm. culture. Yeah, it really was your culture, and it's it's so interesting because just, again, it goes back to what we said in the first episode of this is what you made people people believe this is all they were good for. Mm -hmm. And so it's what they knew and they had fought so hard for it and they're just, and now you're telling them to stop fighting so hard for what they had fought so hard for. Right. And and so it's just, yeah, and I talked to Brody and it's interesting because Brody was there in San Francisco and he's just like, and I was like, but why Brody, why weren't people supporting the bathhouses? And he's like, I don't know, just that's that was that was it. That was what you did, it's what you knew, you mm -hmm. know? 
By June of 1984, the death toll had risen beyond 2,000 and was gaining terrifying momentum. The previously confident Secretary of Health Margaret Heckler was now pleading for $55 million more in AIDS funding, a needed but almost ludicrous demand as funding continued to be slashed and denied. Don Francis of the CDC couldn't even get approval for sanitary door hooks that cost $2.75. By the time the new fiscal year approached, the government approved a mere 6% increase for AIDS funding. On June 5th, an actor visited his doctor about a spot on his neck. The doctor took a sample and agreed to run some tests, but he already knew the result. Now he just had to figure out how to tell Rock Hudson that he had AIDS. Immediately, the actor began seeking treatment. His friend, Stephen Del Rey, told him about some experimental treatments in France. For several weeks, Hudson took the treatments, but there wasn't enough understanding about the virus yet to realize the treatments would need to be taken forever. The actor regained his strength and decided to return to the States for his role in the TV show Dynasty. Dr. Dormant of the Pasteur Institute was hesitant to let Hudson go, to let Hudson go, but Rock insisted that he was feeling better and able to return to work. Shortly after his arrival back to the U.S., the actor donned his black tux and attended a state dinner at the White House. He was, after all, a good friend with, of Nancy Reagan, of good friend of Nancy Reagan's, and a lifelong conservative. Reporters noted that Hudson was looking much thinner than much thinner than usual, and the president's wife mentioned her friend looked a bit under the weather. Rock assured her, I caught some bug while I was filming in Israel. I'm feeling fine now. And it always gets me with Reagan. You know, he's friends with Rock Hudson. But it's the same thing he did when he was on the, the Screen Actors Guild, where he locked up his own friends and former co-stars or blacklisted them. He didn't lock them up. He blacklisted them from... Um, starring in Hollywood because they were gay. Mm-hmm. And now he's got his good friend who he invites to the state dinner because it looks good to have this actor there. And, she, and he's good friends with Nancy Reagan. Um, but his friend's going to die and you know, he can't give a fuck. Right. In September of 84, scientists had done enough tests to prove that HIV spread through semen and vaginal fluids, and it was improbable that it would spread through saliva. This was important on two levels. The first, it proved that heterosexuals were just as likely to receive and transmit the virus. Even though this fact had been known through common and rational sense, it hadn't yet been quote-unquote proven, which politicians would be like, well, we don't know what, how it can travel. There's no proof. And people are like, it just doesn't make sense that you could transmit it from touching. And like, well, there's no proof. And so now this proved it. Um, The second point took aim at the harmful stigma of transference through casual touch or household interaction. Now director Edward Brandt could assure the public that they could not get AIDS from touching a gay person or standing near a sneezing homosexual. As the medicine and science of HIV and AIDS began to take shape, the disease itself took off at breakneck speeds. Dr. Jim Curran projected in late 1984 that there would be 5,000 new cases in the next two years. He missed the mark by 20,000. While the Reagan administration continued to drag its feet on the AIDS crisis and stay relatively silent, Congress was finally doing a small bit of action. The budget they finally approved was a 60% increase over what Reagan's own administration had requested for AIDS funding. The funding was so desperately needed, but there were other matters. For instance, the French drug known the French drug known as HPA23 was showing great success among AIDS patients overseas. It was the same drug that had made such a difference in Rock Hudson during the first weeks he was on it. But America, the extreme testing restrictions slowed down the progress of the release of the drug in the U.S. by years. The only hope for someone fighting the disease who was The only hope for someone fighting the disease was to travel out of country, which meant that most poorer populations had no options for survival. 
The French thought it especially cruel, and Dr. Rosenbaum told a U.S. reporter his frustration. You Americans let people die without any hope. What do these people have to lose? The way medical stuff works in the United States is so fucked mm. up. I know they're like expanding, um, allowing like testing um, clinical trials and things, yeah. like testing uh, experimental drugs on people and things. But like, look at this. Like at this time, there's people just dying here on the streets, and you're like, "Well, sorry, we haven't tested it yet." You have a zero percent survival rate. Zero percent survival rate of this drug, and you can't just let people take it. Right. Like what? Like he said, what do you have to lose? Mm-hmm. You're gonna die gonna either die. way. So I mean, let them fucking take this. Maybe it'll work. Maybe yeah. it won't, and they'll still die. But you know what? At least they tried. Exactly. In January of 1985, Don Francis released the CDC's program titled Operation AIDS Control. Francis had been in this fight from the beginning and was exhausted from years of fighting a conservative government that was uninterested in federal health and especially AIDS health. Still, Francis was an idealist working for more education around sex and AIDS as well as testing sites so that people could know their status. People were still pushing back hard against testing, refusing to be tagged and categorized by the government. But Francis was projecting between 20,000 and 50,000 deaths over the next few years. He was one of the very few doctors and health officials that truly understood the weight of the epidemic. By the time of January, the caseload had surpassed 8,000, almost double from a number taken just a few months earlier. Yeah, they went from 3,000 to 8,000. In April, Francis addressed 2,000 doctors and scientists at the first international conference on acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. I've seen a lot of viruses in my day, he told the crowd, and I've come to develop a profound respect for this one. There aren't many viruses in the history of man that kill one-tenth of the people they infect. We need to think about controlling this one. Francis was right, but all people heard was the word control. The room erupted in anger and dissent as once again the fear of being recloseted stifled the community's rationale. And though he secretly agreed with Francis, director Jim Curran quickly denounced the doctor telling a reporter, Don Francis speaks, Don Francis does not speak for the CDC. He's speaking only for himself. It's almost ironic how quickly Curran distanced himself from Francis when the very next day he himself stood on the, at the podium and announced that between 500,000 to 1 million Americans were most likely infected with AIDS. And while there was still a lot to be done in regards to the study of HIV and AIDS, Dr. Paul Vol- Voldberding made a powerful statement about the other aspect of AIDS. The quality of AIDS patient treatment in the nation has not kept pace with the scientific research, and it was true. As much as was being done to find a cure of the treat or treatment for AIDS, little to nothing was being done to those actually suffering. Almost all hospitals were ill-equipped to handle an AIDS patient, and many flat-out refused to treat those with AIDS, especially if they were gay. So yeah, so you're finally getting some funding for the tr- for like the study of it, but like, what about the people that are dying? Right, you know, nothing. you're projecting five hundred thousand to a million Americans currently have AIDS. And you've set up nothing to help them. You know, insurances don't even have to cover them. Mm-hmm. This point was stressed in Schilt's book and also pointed out during Evan's interview with Brody Levesque. It is important to stop here and recognize a group often completely forgotten during the AIDS crisis, which is the lesbians and bisexual women of the time period. Gay men and other queer identifying people were dropping left and right. By 1985, the epidemic was suffocating the community with fear and most people were either sick or terrified of becoming sick. Lesbians and bisexual women in femme relationships were some of the few exceptions, which isn't to say that lesbians cannot get HIV. In fact, one of the earliest cases recorded was a lesbian doctor who no doubt came into contact with infected blood. 
But for the most part, female-identified folks in same-sex relationships were at a low risk of being able to transmit or receive the disease provided they exercised precaution. And so it was the lesbians and bisexual women who did a large portion of the home care and on-the-ground activism for AIDS awareness, fundraising, and policy changes. And it's, and it's true, like when you talk about the AIDS crisis again, just like everything else, it goes back to this white male disease and, and white male men were dying, so were black men, so were queer identifying people, but the lesbians were the ones that were kind of like carrying things because the men were dying so mm-hmm. rapidly. I mean, I think we talked about, when we talked about the, the gay men's chorus, how one third of the San Francisco gay men's chorus died of AIDS. And so the women were stepping up and, and taking, yeah, carrying taking the load. Yeah, care of people. Some could even say lovingly that the dykes were the last line of defense. In addition to the horrible treatment by doctors and hospitals, insurances dropped coverage of those with AIDS or refused to cover their AIDS-related expenses. More and more landlords were denying houses to AIDS patients, and the few organizations that were helping those in need were overwhelmed with the demands. The gay men's health crisis had reported that the day they established their telephone line, the phone never stopped ringing, though there was a lot there, though there was a bit of positive awareness beginning to swirl as Larry Kramer's new play, A Normal Heart, became a resounding success. The play was a loose autobiography about Kramer and focused on a gay activist who founds an HIV advocacy group. It also takes swipes at the gay men's health crisis, which had fired Kramer for being too outspoken about AIDS. Yeah, it was a weird thing because like we talked about, Larry Kramer was not always likable. And he had helped found the gay men's health crisis. And then they fired him because he was a very much in your face. You need to do something about this. And they're like, Larry, we need to be professional. And Larry's like, fuck professional. We need to help people. Mm -hmm. And so he writes a whole play that becomes wildly successful where he's just basically is like, fuck you guys for firing me. But it was a good play. There you go. (laughs) As society began to pay more attention to AIDS, more people began to get involved with fundraising and community efforts to gain support for AIDS treatment and research. Yet the Reagan administration once again showed its color. Just one year after Margaret Heckler made her announcement that the cause of AIDS had been found and erroneously projected a cure within two years, she returned to the podium once again. This time, the administration had cut AIDS funding by 10% despite the rapidly growing number of deaths in reported cases. Heckler's statement showed their deliberate ignorance around the disease. We must conquer AIDS before it affects the heterosexual population and the general population. We have a very strong public interest in stopping AIDS before it spreads outside the risk groups before it becomes an overwhelming problem. The statement was made in April of 1985. Over 7,000 cases in the United States alone would be reported by year's end and just under 5,600 would be dead. But it wasn't considered an overwhelming problem yet, and the administration still blatantly ignored the thousands of heterosexuals who did have AIDS. Nearly 2,000 heterosexual people were not added to the 7,000 number because they were not gay or black. 2,000 people had become infected through drug use, blood transfusions, and what was then considered heterosexual intercourse. But they weren't gay and they weren't Haitian, so while many local doctors marked the illness as AIDS, the federal government still refused to acknowledge this was a natural national pandemic. 2,000 people dead or, yep. or infected, and they're like, nope, just a gay disease. <clears throat> Urgent. Rock Hudson fatally ill. Urgent. The message flew across the wires as the press was alerted to the movie star's progressing illness. Rumors about Hudson's illness had surrounded the actor for the last year, and on July 23, 1985, just two days after he collapsed in the lobby of a Paris hotel, an official statement was made by his publicist. 
My official statement is that Rock Hudson is in the American hospital where his doctors have diagnosed that he has cancer of the liver and that it is not operable, spokesman Dale Olson told reporters. The doctor was a known alcoholic, so it wasn't a far-fetched idea that he would have liver cancer. Yet, he was also rumored to be gay, and many people believe the illness was more than cancer. Later that day, as Hudson lay in the hospital bed, President Reagan called to tell his friend he was praying for him. It's too bad that Reagan wasn't moved by the 11,000 other Americans who had now been diagnosed with AIDS. He was just in his thoughts and prayers. Mm-hmm. Thoughts and prayers. The doctors, of course, knew the reality of Hudson's diagnosis, as did a few of the, his closest friends, but everyone remained tight-lipped. Still, just the idea that a star like Rock, Rock Hudson might die of AIDS suddenly had everyone talking about the disease. News agencies and politicians that had spent half a decade remaining silent about the issue suddenly couldn't stop talking about the illness. Over the next few days, public figures did all but directly declared that the movie star was gay and dying of AIDS. Reporters hounded the hospitals and doctors in Paris demanding more answers. And finally, on July 25, 1985, French publicist Yannou Collard told the world, Mr. Hudson has acquired immunodeficiency disorder. The admittance was a watershed moment for the AIDS crisis. It shattered countless myths and perceptions held around the world. There was no longer a disease of the poor and unwanted. This was a disease killing the man described as the last of the traditional square-jawed romantic leading men. Rock Hudson was famous and wealthy, and he was dying of AIDS. And significantly, he had left his home in the U.S. to seek treatment elsewhere. If this was the country of medical advancement it declared it and deprided itself to be, then why seek treatment abroad? The scandal of Dr. Gallo's cover-ups and attempts to slow down Paris medicine was brought to light. The apathy and lack of action of the American government and many large health institutions stood in shame. The world was disgusted by the U.S. approach to the AIDS crisis. So you have to see, this was like, so it was like people knew about AIDS and they knew what was happening, and but everybody was able to keep quiet the fact that nothing was being done about it. Mm-hmm. And when Rock Hudson got sick, the whole world was like, the fuck are you doing america well see that's the thing like here we are and trump administration all this shit's going down and everybody's Mm -hmm. trying to cover it up and i mean stuff's being exposed but you know in the next 10 years yeah the next 20 years crazy shit's gonna come out Mm. that like oh yeah we saw oh they were holding these children in concentration camps yeah everybody sat by and did nothing oh they were doing this and oh and like just more and more is gonna come out yeah yeah four years before a handful of men had raised just over $6,000 for aid research, AIDS research over the course of a weekend. Within three days of the Rock Hudson AIDS announcement, $630,000 was raised in a single afternoon during one AIDS walkathon in L.A. By the end of the month, more than 12,000 people in the U.S. had been diagnosed with AIDS, and over 6,000 had died. Doctors projected that 1,000 cases a month would be reported from that month on, and they were not wrong. By the end of 1987, 50,280 people had been diagnosed with AIDS and 47,993 were dead. Rock Hudson was one was among them succumbing to the disease on October 2nd, 1985. So that is almost like, that's like a 98% mm-hmm. mortality rate right there. Yeah. Um, and the government is just... I don't know what happened. Oopsie, guys. We were so advanced, but we were going to have a cure, and then something happened. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. This is the end of 1987. It's a shit show, and what's infuriating is that in this shit show, like, this this comes to light in 1987. This mm-hmm. is um, Reagan's going into his last year as president. His 
Vice President George H.W. Bush is up for re- is up for election, and you know that fifty of the fifty thousand people diagnosed with AIDS, forty almost forty eight thousand of them have died, mm-hmm. and you elected that fucking idiot. You elected his um, his vice president, knowing yeah. that. For the rest of the decade, awareness around AIDS grew mostly due to the help of celebrities who stepped in to raise money for the cause. Joan Rivers was among the first stars to show support. And I couldn't find the quote again, but she was like, she's doing a benefit right after Rock Hudson dies. And she's like, you know, it's crazy because six months ago, I couldn't get any of these fucking celebrities to show up for a benefit. And now they're all here, which it's good. But she's like, Joan Rivers was doing AIDS charities long before it was the thing to do. Mm-hmm. Later, notably, Elizabeth Taylor and Elton John formed charities to fund research and treatment. In 1987, Schultz's book showed a light on the deception and politics that had hindered a proper response to the crisis. And throughout it all, the presidential administrations of Reagan and later George H.W. Bush remained largely silent. Reagan addressed the disease once in 1985 and did so only to express sympathy for parents who did not want to send their children to school with a child who had AIDS. It wasn't until 1987 that he began to openly speak up about AIDS. And that was when all, like, everything came to light in 1987. Mm. And now he has to talk about it. He's like, oh, well, guess what? It's the end of my fucking presidency. So yeah, I don't he, even was, care. He fuck, yeah. In 1990, the Ryan White Care Act was passed by Congress. The act was named after a young boy from Indiana who contracted AIDS through a blood transfusion. After years of wrangling with blood banks to test their blood, they finally began to relent in 1985. But it wasn't until 1987 that measures were widely passed, and during those seven years, countless people had become infected due to routine blood transfusions. The Ryan White Care Act provided funding for care for living people with AIDS, uh, with HIV-AIDS. While the act re- expired in 2013, the funding still remains in place for victims. And that, so that was the first time that something was actually done for the victims, mm-hmm. aside from like some local fundraising. But this is when the government finally did something. And that was in victims. 1990. And that is only because, I assume, a straight person had contracted yeah, yeah, Ryan through White was a blood a, transfusion, and it was acknowledged that it came from a blood transfusion. He was a child who contracted okay, it through a yeah, blood transfusion, and it became a big thing. So that's 11 years after the first case is uncovered mm-hmm. in America. And all of these tens of thousands of people are dropping dead, and they're like, oh, mm-hmm. wow, this uh, boy caught it through a blood transfusion. Guess we better do something about it. Yep. Yeah, by the time the Ryan uh, White Care Act went through, and I could be wrong, but I think by the time it went through, there was almost 200,000 people. Yeah. Today we face the continued battle of erasing the gay stigma around HIV and AIDS as well as addressing the problem of HIV and AIDS in black and brown communities. While great advancements have been made in the treatment of white queer people, we still see that black and brown queer people and trans people of all colors struggle to assess affordable tests, treatment, and home care. The Black AIDS Institute offers a lot of resources about black AIDS issues, and the Latino Commission on AIDS offers resources for for Latino AIDS issues. In our community, we can actively work to provide free HIV tests testing and needle exchanges as well as making our sex education more inclusive and expansive and i actually watched a documentary not too long ago um and it was about the aids crisis within the black community and there were certain uh cities and things like that where if you are a young black gay man there was a one in two chance you were infected with hiv or aids um because it pointed out a lot of things like when you see you know things for aids treatment or um prep or anything like that or mm-hmm. uh, go here to get tested it's all white people portrayed on the advertisements and things and it's just kind of that thing like oh that's not for me exactly and it's not addressed to these communities that really need the help and the funding there was still or even as early as like the late two like 2000s where people 
didn't believe that they could get AIDS mm -hmm. because black men didn't believe they could get AIDS because it wasn't ever portrayed that way. Right. Um, would you remember what the name of that documentary I don't, was? I saw it. I'll, if I find it, I'll link it. I'll yeah, look for it. Yeah, link it because I they did find a documentary, but it wasn't for free. Um, and I couldn't tell if the whole thing was available on YouTube, so I didn't link it here. But there was a documentary. Mm -hmm. It was made in the 80s, and it was about black men. Oh, this was like a recent one. Oh, okay. It was I, made very recent. I think it was on YouTube. But yeah, if I find okay. it, I'll post it. Yeah. Um, your recommended resources for this episode are The Secret Epidemic, The Story of AIDS and Black America by Jacob Levinson and the play Angels in America, which is available for free on YouTube or Life Support, available to rent on YouTube. Or Life Support, available to rent on YouTube, which is about a black woman living with HIV and stars Queen Latifah. There is also um, a series on YouTube called Faces of AIDS, okay. and it highlights yes. people from all backgrounds. You know, it highlights straight men, straight women, gay men, uh, bisexual people, and it just kind of brings that awareness like this is not a gay disease this is a disease that affects everyone mm -hmm. exactly and as i said last time and i say this time worldwide in america there's more men with aids than women but worldwide there is 18 million women with aids and 17 million men with aids and so again this stigma that people with vaginas can't get aids you've got to end that even even on the cdc they still say that highest risk group are people with penises and it's just not true anymore mm -hmm. it, i mean it's true in the sense that you know how we talk about safe sex but like worldwide we're seeing more women with aids and that's because we've or people with vagina with aids and that's because we projected this myth that people with penises get aids and people right so they don't every, have to worry about it yeah people of every demographic can get aids it's about having safe sex so yeah, that is, there is your AIDS crisis. We only did five years of the AIDS crisis and that was a 38 page script. Yes. Wow. Um, Evan did a lot of research on this one and mm. uh, we promised you we were going to bring it to you and we did. Yeah, we did. So uh, stay queer. Don't get a lobotomy. We love you, our little allied hookers. And our little succulent sapphists. Resist the oppressors, our proud homocrats. And have yourself a safe sodomy circus. Or don't. And Black Lives Matter. Yes. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and review wherever you are listening and follow us on social media at Your Queer Story. Like what you heard? Want to share your story? Send us a voice message to add to the podcast from the Anchor app or at anchor.fm slash yourqueerstory. And if you would like to support the work we do or get exclusive content, check us out on patreon.com slash yourqueerstory. See you next week. Bye. Bye.